podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25 and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homework company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable, hosted by Kevin DeVries, on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Today is Tuesday. It is the 14th of November. And this is, of course, the Two-Footed Podcast. The best daily Premier League podcast in the world. May well be the only one. In fact, I think it is the only one. And therefore, it has to be the best. So, how are we all today? Uh, today, we've got winners and losers from the weekend. We've got a little bit of adoration for Unai Emery. We've got our power rankings of sweepers, now a little bit different than normal, a lot shorter than normal, and then we'll have news and gossip. So that's what we've got today. Uh, We're going to start with the winners and losers from the weekend. What was a a fairly strange weekend in the Premier League in some respects, some outlandish results, some dreadful performances, uh, and some really good performances along the way. Our first winner 
Our first winner has to be Bournemouth. Newcastle are one of the better teams in the league. They began the weekend in sixth place. They're in the Champions League, having finished in the top four last year. And they've spent a boatload of money. Now, I understand that they had a raft of injuries, but everybody has injuries at the moment. Like, everybody has injuries. Now, Newcastle are particularly unfortunate in that four of their five best players are currently out. And they were missing Callum Wilson and Harvey Barnes and others. So, you know, Newcastle are in a particularly tough spot at the moment. But it's not like Bournemouth went into that game injury-free themselves. They're missing Tyler Adams, the player that was brought in to be that primary ball winner in midfield, the guy who'd protect the defence. They're missing Alex Scott, the guy who was brought in to partner him. So that's your two starting centre midfielders gone. There was no Philip Philip Billing, who's probably their starting number 10. So you could argue they were missing three starters. Two were worse off, without question. But Tuna spent a lot more money and have a better team. But for Bournemouth to turn around and perform the way they did and get the result that they did and keep a clean sheet, which was I was very impressed by, I think that's a huge result, especially when all three teams below them failed to win. Sheffield United at least got a point, but Luton and Burnley were both beaten. And then Fulham lost and Forrest lost. So not only did they give themselves a bit of a cushion on the teams below them, they're also closing the ground on the teams above them. Now, admittedly, if they were to lose their next game and Luton were to win their next game, they would drop back into the bottom three because their goal difference still leaves a lot to be desired. They've conceded 27 goals thus far this season, which is obviously far, far too many. And they've only scored 11 goals, which is not enough. So Bournemouth, are showing some signs of light. That's two wins in their last three. And I think, given this international break should give them some more coaching time, they won't have huge numbers away with international teams. I do think we might see them start to turn the corner. And I do think the bottom three might get cut away quite early this year. I thought Burnley were going to be fine. They're not. They're not. They're not going to be okay. The only thing that will save one of those newly promoted teams is Everton getting a 12-point deduction and going on a bad run. My next winner then is Everton because they also won at the weekend, went to Crystal Palace and picked up a massive win. A win that was very much needed considering the the threat of this 12-point deduction hanging over them. Now, since that 12-point deduction was first mooted, they have taken on 10 points from their last five games. They had four points through seven games. Sorry, they had... They had... Yeah, four points through seven games, and now they've got 14. They look more threatening in attack. They look really well-balanced with Harrison one side. And McNeil, the other. Onana is playing outstanding football. I've really enjoyed what I've seen of James Garner this season. I think Calvert-Lewin looks like he's getting back into form. 
the Tarkovsky Brantway partnership is something that they can be quite excited about. Michael Enkel's playing the best football he's played since coming to England. And Pickford is Pickford. So he will keep you in a lot of games where maybe you would expect to lose. The downside is he will throw away a game that you'd expect to get something from. But that happens less than he keeps you in games. So to go to Palace and get a win is really, really positive. It means that if they were given this points deduction, they'd only be five points from safety. And you would bet heavily on them to get five points more than Luton, Sheffield United or Burnley. In truth, they'd only be four points because their goal difference is vastly superior to Luton's. So you would absolutely back them to stay up if they continue to play like this. And I have a feeling if they got that points deduction, I really do have a feeling that Dyche would use that in a really positive way to galvanize them even further and drive more belief into them that it's them against the world create that siege mentality I think Everton would nearly be better off going to the FA and saying look just give us the 12 points and give us give us them now give us them now so that we've still got 26 games left in the campaign and all we need to do is take four points more than Luton Sheffield United or Burnley across the rest of the season that's all we need to do and then they'll be fine. And then they start next season afresh. Some concerning stuff at the moment over the new owners doesn't sound very positive. Nothing you hear about them sounds all that positive. Other clubs that they're invested in, the fans are very unhappy. There's questions over whether they actually have that sort of money, who's backing them. Some of the practices they put in place, some of the people they employ. We'll see. We'll see what happens. I, I don't know enough about them. I know of one person who works for them, uh, but I do not know that person. But from what I hear through a mutual friend, they're very, very good at what they do. They formerly worked for a team who's now in the championship, was in the Premier League for a number of years um, when he was there. And he, by all accounts, is excellent at what he does. But there's, then you see some rumours online about certain other people that work there who perhaps aren't as highly qualified to work in, in this sort of sphere. Who knows? Um, last winner, then. I'm going to go with Wolves because of the manner of their victory. Winning at home to Spurs when Spurs are missing... Three of their starting back four, plus Madison, plus Richarlison, isn't hugely impressive, but the manner of it was. And Sarabia's goal is just worth talking about again. I assume by now everybody has seen this goal. That first touch is absolutely disgusting. It is so good, he should be arrested. It's a good ball by Cunha. But Sarabia makes it into one of the passes of the season with that first touch. And then the second touch is incredible. And what's really impressive is just how smooth the whole thing is. Like, he doesn't have to break his stride. He doesn't have to readjust his feet. Touch, step, bang. 
and the ball never touches the floor. It's, it's a gorgeous goal. It's an absolutely gorgeous goal. Outrageous stuff. Um, so they're the winners. Unfortunately for Spurs, they have to go into the loser category for the second weekend in a row. Purely the manner of defeat. Losing away to Wolves with that many injuries isn't a dreadful thing. Losing in that manner is a dreadful thing. When you're 1-0 up going into stoppage time and you lose, there's just no excuse. Same thing with Brentford when they went to Old Trafford. This is this is inexcusable. Especially when you've got senior players in that defence who should know better. Uh, next loser... They didn't lose, but I'm putting them down as a loser this weekend, and it's Brighton. 1-0 up at home to one of the worst teams in the league. At, at the time, the worst team in the league. To end up drawing the game and now having Mo Hood out for three games with a suspension. Something's not quite right with the balance of Brighton right now. And I said, I don't like the defence. Veltman is fine, but he needed to be replaced in the summer. Dunk is showing quite clear signs of decline. He has not been good this season. The other centre-backs, Webster has fallen off a cliff from where he was two years ago. I think last season losing his place to Colwell really hit his confidence. Igor is talented, he hasn't really settled in yet. And he's been playing a fair bit of left-back, which I don't think suits him. And it gets him out of rhythm of playing in centre-back. And then there's Van Heck. I understand why Deserby likes him. He's good on the ball, he's a good passer. He reads the game fairly well. I just don't think he's a good defender. I shouldn't think he's a good defender at all. And then at left back, Estupinen has been out for a prolonged period and now looks like he'll be out for a little while. Is there an update on that, actually? No, no update on that. Um, they're in a situation where they've got quite a few injuries now as well. Solly March, Danny Welbeck. I mean, Solly's a big blow. Danny Welbeck is a minor blow because they're they're well stocked in attack. Uh, Ferguson has a back injury. He'll be back soon enough. Um, Dunk is out. Milner. There's been far too much James Milner this season. Far, far too much James Milner this season. Stupid and Lamptey. They're hopeful he'll be back after the break. And then in CISO. He's hope he is hopeful he'll be back by December and fingers crossed he will be. Um I, I don't like the defense. I don't like Jason uh, Jason Steele at all. He's not a Premier League caliber goalkeeper. He just isn't. Yes, he's good at playing out from the back, but he's not good at the goalkeeping aspect of his job. There is a, a an eleven there, I think that could be very, very good again, like they were last season and they were to begin this season. And maybe when everybody's back fit and the manager moves away from playing some of the dross, 
maybe then they get back into a good rhythm, but they haven't won a league game since September. And that was a poor result at the weekend at home to such a poor side. So unfortunately, uh, Brighton are a loser this weekend. And the final one. Seems mean, but I think it has to be. I think it has to be Burnley. Like, I know it was Arsenal that they lost to. I know. That's that's fair enough. But it's more the psychological blow of dropping to the bottom of the table. You're 12 games in. You've got four points. You've got four points. You've got the least number of points in the division. You've got the most defeats in the division. You've scored the least goals in the division. And if it weren't for the fact that Sheffield United got absolutely pummeled by Newcastle, you'd have conceded the most goals in the division. You're the worst team across the board right now. The psychological blow of dropping to the bottom of the table, I think could be quite hard for them. If I was to power rank the managers in order of where I, of if they'll get sacked, Vincent Company right now has to be top of that list. He has to be top of that list because Iraola only took over in the summer. Edwards was given a championship team to manage because they have a clear plan. Heck and bottom, I mean, if we look at Sheffield United's summer business, they lost their two best players or two of their three best players in the summer. Inaman and Jai left, went to Marseille, and Sander Berger left, went to Burnley. Now, they did bring in Vinicius Sousa, Gustavo Hammer, and Cameron Archer. They also brought in Tom Davies, Austin Trusty, Benny Traore, and East Sleman. These are all decent players. But they didn't have a huge spend in the summer. The Enjoy and uh, Berger sales covered a lot of their cost for the summer. Whereas you look at Burnley and you look at what Burnley did in the summer, it's just a whole lot of money spent. Seven million on O'Shea, 13 million on Bayer, three and a half on Obafemi, 16 on Amdumi, 15 on Trafford, 2.6 on Koliashi. Koliosho, who does look talented. 12 on Berger. I think it was 18 on Odebert. Like 12 on, on Delcroy. 14 on Ramsey. That's just a lot of money spent. And as I keep pointing out, no lead centre-back. And no number nine. Amdoni is best off the striker. Redmond is best in a wide role. They got him in a three. Uh, Obafemi's best kind of playing in a wide role in a three. Or off a target man. Coley Oshu is a winger. Odebert is a winger. Ramsey's an attacking midfielder. You didn't buy a regular reliable goal scorer. 
And there's a lot of talent in the squad. There really is a lot of attacking talent in this squad. But there's no one who can reliably get you goals. Like, look at the squad. Jay Rodriguez. He is a nine at this point. Doesn't have the mobility to play wide like he used to. He used to play kind of left side of a front three when he's at Southampton with, with um, Ricky Lambert in the middle. Um, the knee injury he suffered kind of took some of his pace. And he's gotten older. He's 34 now. He's very much a central player, but he's not a big-time goal scorer. Manuel Benson's a winger. Redmond's a winger. Lyle Foster, he's a nine. So we'll come back to him. Zaruri, like I say, sorry, Zaruri's a winger. Amdoni is best off a striker. Uh, Shurlanov is a winger. Kolyosho is a winger. Tresor is a winger. Jakob Brun Larsen is a winger. Obafemi is a second striker, better kind of off, off a big man or, or a little bit wider. And Odebert's a winger. It's a very talented group. Very, very talented group. Like Zorori, Amdoni, and Odebert behind uh, a striker would be, I think, pretty sensational. If you could stick, let's say, Sander Berger and Josh Brownhill in a double pivot. I think that's really, really talented. The problem is there just isn't a nine there. And Lyle Foster, he works hard. He occupies defenders. He's 23 years of age, so he's still developing. But his career best season is eight goals in 21 games. So I have a couple of concerns here. Number one, why doesn't he play more games per season? His career best games played is 26. He just doesn't get enough goals. In the championship last season, he joined in the January. Actually, I tell a lie. Last season, he played 36 games between Westerlo and Burnley, and he scored nine goals. That's his career best season. He scored one in 15 after joining Burnley. One in 15. But that's still, like, he joined in January and only played 11 league games. Burnley played 20-plus league games after January. So injury issues, not always available, and not scoring. Now, this season, to his credit, he does have three goals in the Premier League. But that's not going to be enough. It's not going to be enough at all. There's so much talent in the group. Like, I, I listed out a potential front group, front attacking group, and I didn't have Aaron Ramsey in it. And Aaron Ramsey might be the most talented player at the club. I mean, I'm only... I think could be really, really good. But he needs to play off a striker. He's brilliant for Basel. But he plays off a striker. He doesn't play as the striker. Zorori was great last season for them. Koliashu looks a real, real talent. Odebert is a potential superstar in the making, genuinely. That kid is going to be very special if he develops the right way. But there's just no goal scorer. And that's my concern with them. 
And then obviously at the back, you've got you've got a decent group of defenders. You don't have a, you don't have someone that takes charge, and you've got a young goalkeeper. So you need someone that can really take charge at the back, and they just don't have it. If company is still in charge come January 1st, they need to have an experienced centre-back coming in from somewhere. Someone who's a proven leader and organiser who can just get them in a shape and tighten things up there. And they need to find someone that can put the ball in the back of the net. Simple as that. Do those two things and we will see a marked improvement. Don't do them and they're definitely going down. Right. On to Unai Emery. A lot of discourse on Unai Emery in the last couple of days. I have been saying for weeks that I think Unai Emery is the third best manager in the Premier League. The job he has done at Aston Villa, taking 77 points from 39 league games, that's a high-caliber job. That's top four football across a full season. It's very, very impressive. Might even be top three football in some seasons. They were team threatened with relegation before he took over. Badly managed, badly coached. No distinctive style of play. And he has very quickly instilled an identity, the right mindset. He has them playing well on two fronts. They're going well in, in Europe. They're fifth in the Premier League. And he's done that without spending enormous amounts. I think he has spent some money. Some money, no question. He spent some money uh, in the summer. They brought in Musa Diaby. Obviously, they brought in Pau Torres. They got Yuri Tielemans on a free, and they loaned in Zaniolo and Longley. All told. In the summer, they spent roughly ninety million, and in the previous January, uh, he did bring in Alex Moreno, and uh, Moreno cost them uh, somewhere in the ten million range. So he's about a hundred million in, but that transformation is incredible. And you look at their team, and they're strong in in most areas. You know, they've got one of the best goalkeepers in the league. Maddie Cash is having a good season. Ezri Konza can also play right back. You've got Dina and Moreno as your left-back option. So, you know, I'm not a huge fan of either, but they're they're solid. You've got Carlos, Konza, Torres, Mings when he comes back, Chambers, Longley. It's a pretty good group of centre-backs. You'd maybe like to see them add... Another right-back option, just to round out that defensive group so Konza doesn't have to play right-back at any point. Although Konza right-back, Carlos, Torres, and Dina as a back four, where Dina can launch forward and the other three can sit in, that has worked for them when they've used it. In midfield, he's got Bubakar Kamara playing brilliantly. Douglas Louise is playing his best football. John McGinn is playing very well. Tielemans might be unhappy, but he's playing quite well. Uh, Zaniolo has flashed talent 
on occasion. He hasn't had much of Jacob Ramsey this season. So they've got him to come back, which will be huge. Then you've got uh, Dan Donker, Buendia, obviously out injured, but another one they'll be able to call on whenever he gets back. It's a strong group of midfielders. Again, you might want one more. If you could go Kamara, Luis, Ramsey on the left, and I mentioned him yesterday, Emile Smith-Rowe on the right. If they could get Emile Smith-Rowe without losing Luis, that midfield would be very, very interesting. And then in terms of depth behind them, you've got Zaniolo for the left, McGinn for the right, and then Dendonker and Tielemans as the backup to central midfielders. That's a pretty strong group. Up front, Watkins and Diaby. They've got Duran and Bailey. Again, that's pretty strong. You've still got Bertrand Traore there. I didn't like the decision, as I said before, to sell Aaron Ramsey or Cameron Archer. I would have liked to have kept both, but I can see the logic in moving them on. I just would have tried to get do new contracts and loan them. Even a two year, if you got could get them to sign four year contracts and loan them for two years, so they get some continuity there. But that's a really good squad, but it does have areas to be improved on. So this is not the finished product. I think Emery's doing such a good job without spending the ludicrous sums of money that certain other managers have spent and quietly under the radar. Like, there's no there's no talk about Aston Villa. People aren't bringing Villa up nearly enough as a potential top four team. Jamie Carragher, who clearly listens to this podcast, said he thought Emery was the third best manager in the league as well. And he got a lot of pushback. He got a lot of crying from the Arsenal fans, as as of course is the way. But then we had a really weird discourse going on about Emery last night, how he fails at big clubs. And I thought, well, that's interesting because he spent two years at Paris Saint-Germain. And apparently he failed at Paris Saint-Germain. But in his first season there, he won the Cup and the League Cup and lost out in the league to that incredible Monaco team. And in the following season, he won a travel. And then he chose to leave while they were asking him to stay. So did he really fail or is it your perception that he failed? Because he went from PSG to Arsenal. And that's, you know, kind of a downgrade in terms of Champions League prospects. But did he really fail? I don't believe that he did fail. He won 76.32% of his games. Yes, they didn't win the Champions League. What season did PSG win the Champions League? Answers on a postcard. He didn't fail at PSG. It's a misconception that he did. It didn't happen. You look at what he did at Sevilla before PSG. He won three straight Europa Leagues. Do you know how hard that is? To win that competition once is very difficult. To do it three years in a row is not... It, it, well, it is impossible because no one else has done it, ever. Um, he failed at Spartak Moscow. But prior to that, he'd done really well with Valencia. He'd done really well with Almeria. 
And he'd done an outstanding job with Lorca Deportivo, considering who they are as a club. He failed at Arsenal. All right. Did he? Got them to a Euro- European final. Oh, the performance in the final was embarrassing. Did he play? Or did the players let him down? And it didn't get them into top four. Okay. He had one full season and he didn't get them top four. Arteta's had three full seasons. He's got them top four once. And Arteta has spent 600 million and has control of transfers. Emery gets hammered for the transfers when he was at Arsenal. He didn't have any control. Sven Mislintat and the idiot they brought in from Barcelona who had never worked in the recruitment side of things but put himself forward as if he had. They ran the transfers at Arsenal. That's why when Edu came in and Arteta came in, they took complete control together as a duo. There was no interference from above. And Mislintat had a bit too much of a free reign and the complete oversight of the manager. Edu and Arteta worked side by side. But how much did he spend at Arsenal? He took over in the summer of 2018. Now, I'm not pretending the signings were good. They weren't. They were dreadful. But Leno's a good goalkeeper, and he's been really good for Fulham. And to be quite frank, I'd rather have Burnt Leno than either of the goalkeepers they have now. Uh, Lucas Torreira didn't work out, but he's a good player. Like, he is a good player. Gwendozi's a really good player. He's just an arsehole, um, which is a little bit unfortunate. Lichtsteiner was a bad signing, and Socrates was a bad signing. But I think three of them were actually decent signings. It's just that when Arteta took over, he didn't like their faces. If we're going to hammer him on stuff, can we not give him credit then? Like, if we're going to say he did dreadfully transfer-wise and blame him for stuff, what about Martinelli and Saliba? who Arsenal fans will tell you the two best in the world. Like, Nicolas Pepe failed dreadfully. Dreadfully. But that's mostly Arteta's fault, because Emery was only his manager for three months. Kieran Tierney is a really good left-back. Arteta just doesn't like him, for whatever reason. And then David Luiz, who, by the way, was actually pretty decent for Arsenal for a while. Like, when you look back at it, Mislintat didn't do as bad a job as people make out. And Emery gets hammered for for it. So why not credit him for the ones that did work? Like, he didn't have much say either way. But if you're going to hammer him for Pepe, surely you've got to credit him for Saliba and Martinelli. Is that not fair? Is it not right to have balance with this? Like, if you're going to hammer him on something he wasn't involved in, then praise him on stuff he wasn't involved in. 
His first season, his only full season there. In the league, Arsenal finished fifth. And they missed out on top four by one point. By one point. They took 70 points in the league. The thing he failed on there that cost him top four was he didn't get the defence right. They conceded 51 goals, which is very unlike him. But he had them scoring for fun. They scored 73 goals. Now, Arsenal fans will tell you they couldn't win away. In that first season, they won away to Cardiff, away to Newcastle, away to Fulham, away to Bournemouth, away to Huddersfield, away to Watford and away to Burnley. Are they all games they should win away? Absolutely. But the idea that they couldn't win away at all simply isn't true. But 70 points is 70 points. That gets you top four most seasons. Then the following year, he gets sacked on the 29th of November. The season started badly. They're 13 games in. And they're eighth in the league. Okay? They're eighth in the league after 13 games. They have lost three times, but they've drawn too many games. They've won four, lost three, and drawn six. Well, Mikel Artena took over, drew a whole bunch of games, and lost a whole bunch of games, and at one point was 12th in the league, and then finished eighth. So he didn't improve them. Uh, they took a 14-point step back in terms of their tally. In 2021, uh, Mikel Arteta, having spent $200 million or there thereabouts, finished eighth with 61 points. 61 points. Eighth. So, significantly worse than Emery in his first season, despite having spent an awful lot more than Emery did in his first season. Uh, in his second season, uh, Mikel Arteta finished fifth. So, he matched Emery's best, but a point less than Emery. He's now 400 plus million into his spend which is over double what Unai Emery spent during his tenure. And he's yet to match him in terms of league performance. And then in year three, he finally gets a season better than Unai Emery finishes second. But that's year three. It's year three and a half, really, because he got the first half. He got a half the first season. He took over. But it's taken him this long to build a team better than Emery. Emery didn't get that long. Eighteen months is what Emery got, basically. Well, eighteen months into Arteta's tenure, they were eighth, much worse 
than what Emery had been after 12 months, the same as he had been after 18 months. Add another 12 months on, you're 30 months in, and he's still worse than Emery was after his first 12 months. But he is better than Emery was after 18 months. See, what Arteta has been given is time and money. Now, Emery got money, but he didn't get to decide who he was spending it on. He didn't get to pick what players he wanted, what players he could just force out of the club. He didn't have this level of control. So the idea that he failed at Arsenal is a little bit of a false one as well. From Arsenal, he goes to Villarreal. And he wins the Europa League. With Villarreal, that's an incredible achievement. They're a tiny club. He gets to a Champions League semi-final. It's an incredible achievement. And then he takes over Aston Villa who are bound for relegation, and he gets them into the Conference League, and then in year, his, his, his actual year one, he has them fifth and going well in Europe. Not only is Unai Emery historically a better manager than Mikel Arteta, since Mikel Arteta became a manager, Unai Emery has outperformed it. What Emery's doing at Villa is more impressive than what Arteta is doing at Arsenal. If Emery spent 600 million on this Villa team, I think he'd have them top two as well. If he spent another five hundred million to match what 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 Arteta has spent, absolutely, absolutely, because he's already got the bones of it. If you look at this Villa team and try and picture them as a team that could compete for the title, Debu Martinez, yeah, absolutely. I think Pau Torres, as long as you put a commanding dominant centre-back next to him. Konza a right-back? Absolutely. Not Cash, Konza. You'd need a new left-back. So you're talking new centre-back, new left-back. Let's say let's say we go for... Um, let's say we go Jean-Claire Tadebo, because he's really good. So let's say we get him, and let's say at left-back we bring in Purvis Estupinen. Uh, there's probably it's probably 115 million for the two. Right? So you go Konza, Tadebo, Torres, Estupinen. So that's really good. That's I think that's a title caliber back four. Um with Martinez behind. Bubakar Kamara, absolutely. You would want a partner for him. I I don't think Douglas Louise is quite that level, but I could be wrong. But I still want to bring in another. So if you look at, let's say, hmm, let's just say you went and signed Manu Kone. And put him into that team. So now you've got Kone and Kamara as a pair of kind of sitting midfielders in there. One is a destructive roaming destroyer, the other is that kind of composed 
positionally wise sitter. Probably 35 million. That brings us to 150. Ramsey, absolutely. You're probably going to want a different option on the other side. So you're looking for an attacking midfielder slash winger. I think you go winger. I think you move Musa Diaby out there. That's what I think you do. And I think you bring in Ivan Tony up front. And I think that team can challenge. Tony and Watkins up front, Diaby right side, Ramsey left side, Kamara, maybe not Coney. Um, maybe not Coney. Coney is really good, but maybe you just want somebody. <clears throat> Maybe you bring in Amadou Onana for that more powerful box-to-box presence. So he'd be, say, 65. What do we say? 115 for the defense. So that's about 180. Diaby right side. Tony and Watkins up front. Who's going to look forward to playing them? So you've got those two up front. You've got the goal threat of Ramsey, the creativity and goal threat of Diaby. And you've got Estupinen as that overlapping pace option down the left. That's going to be really, really formidable going forward. And then you've got Kamara and Onana in centre midfield with Konza, Tadibo and Torres behind. You're probably looking at, what, 260 million? 250, Ivan Tony's probably what, 50, 70? Probably less, but let's say 70. That's 250 million. And then consider the options you have for, for your squad. You've got Dina, you've got Cash, you've got Carlos, Luis, McGinn, Telemans. You probably spend another 50 million adding to the squad. You might want a good backup goalkeeper. Uh, John Duran's another good option off the bench, but you might want a, a backup goalkeeper and you might want maybe one more centre-back to bring in. I mean, Esri Konza would be the next in line then to be upgraded on, but I think Esri Konza could play in a team that could win the league. I think that's a really good team. That's 200 and, let's say 300 million from where he is now to a team that can challenge for the title. He spent 100 million. That's 400 million to play the style of football he's playing because he has used the Abbey on the right a bunch of times. I think, I think if he, if he got that type of backing, I think that Villa team would beat this Arsenal team personally. Might not have some of the individual names, but I think it would beat that this, this Arsenal team because Emery Ball. And how direct he could go with those two up front, I think would cause Villa or cause Arsenal an awful lot of problems. I think I think Emery's the third best manager in the league. And frankly, the idea that Mikel Arteta is better than them is, is absolute nonsense. This idea that Emery couldn't control a dressing room 
and that Arteta somehow has control. Let's remember who's in that Arsenal dressing room. It's entirely players he bought or it's kids. Because every face that didn't fit, he forced out the door. Anyone, anyone that he didn't think he could control, he forced out the door. Any big personality, forced out the door. Emery can control a big dressing room. Emery can control ego. Look at some of the players he's had over the years who adore him. Unai Emery's a great manager. And it's time he got his respect. We'll be back after the break where we will discuss sweepers. See you soon. Right, welcome back. So, it is sweeper day on our power rankings. Unfortunately, though, the sweeper is not part of modern football, which pains me greatly. Uh, We did get a little glimpse into what it could be at times last season when Mourinho would sometimes just throw in the random sweeper. But it hasn't been a thing now for a few years, so there's no point in looking at modern players. Like, I know Brian Cristante can play there because I've seen him play there for Roma, but nobody else really is using that shape. And it's a real shame because having that extra midfielder for progression would allow you to play two centre-backs who can actually defend as opposed to a lot of teams that sacrifice a defender who can defend for a defender who's good on the ball. Um, so there's no point in talking about modern sweepers. What we're going to talk about is just the top 10 all time. Um, number one is Franz Beckenbauer. And there's no debate on this. It is Franz Beckenbauer. He is one of the greatest players to ever play the game. Could obviously play centre-back as well and played in holding midfield. But it was him that basically transformed the game into this modern sweeper, libero type. That ability to step out from the back. And because he was so good at it, the teams got altered to basically incorporate having him there and then having still having your defense be your defense. And he was just able... It was basically like having a 10 and sticking him behind your defensive line. A, he covered for a lot of the mistakes that were made by others because he was, by nature, a defensive player. And B he would give you that playmaking from the back, which a lot of teams couldn't cope with. Because when you play a 10, it's a lot easier to take them out of the game than it is to take a sweeper out of the game. Because of the position a sweeper starts in and where he moves from, you don't really want to commit to playing a man marker that high up the pitch. You could ask your number 10 to pick him up, but most number 10s are hopeless defensively. And don't want to run back 60 yards chasing some fella who's bolted up the pitch like a horse out of a stable. Franz Beckenbauer's career is... It's as good as anyone's ever had. 584 games for Bayern Munich. 105 games then for New York Cosmos. Came back, finished off playing with Hamburger, though did have another spell with the Cosmos... Um, as the last season of his career. For Germany, 103 caps, 14 goals. Won the World Cup 
1974, was a runner-up in 66, and finished third in 1970. Also won the European Championships in 1972, and the was runner-up in 1976. So just consider that for a second. Barring the 1968 Euros, which were won by the Italians. The Germans weren't there. There was only four teams. Germany finished in the top three in every international competition between 1966 and 1976. That's really, really impressive. And a lot was made of when France won the World Cup and the Euros then off the back of it. But the Germans did that as well in the 70s. Now, there was less teams involved, so you can say it was easier. That's fair enough. That's a fair argument. But I think to get to -to back-to-back finals in major international tournaments, as they did in the Euros from 76, from 72 and 76, and then three World Cup top three finishes, including a win in a row, 66, 70, and 74. I think that's just incredible. With Bayern, he won four league titles, four cups, and three European cups. Now, bear in mind, this is Bayern pre-Uber dominance over everything. This is Bayern that when he got into the team, they were still a regional team. They also won the Cup Winners Cup in 67. But three straight European Cups it is an amazing achievement for anybody. And you know they did it, Ajax did it. We've seen Real do it in recent years. It's, it's a nigh-on impossible task. He also won a Bundesliga with Hamburg. Now, Hamburg were great in the early 80s. But he was part of the team that won the Bundesliga there. He won three... North American Soccer Leagues in 77, 78, and 80. He just won everywhere. Even as a manager. Wins the World Cup with Germany in 1990. Goes to Marseille and wins the French title. Goes to Bayern. Wins the Bundesliga and wins the UEFA Cup. A two-time Ballon d'Or winner as a defender. Four-time German Footballer of the Year. Three-time member of World Cup All-Star teams. Silver Bowl winner at the 74 World Cup. Twice in the Euro, uh, Euro team of the tournament. Like, you're talking about a legitimate superstar. One with very few equals across the history of the game. Just... A truly, truly great player. A very, very good manager. But one who decided to stop managing because the players annoyed him because they weren't nearly as good as him. And remember, when he got the German job, he was only 39. He'd only stopped playing a year earlier. Takes over with Germany. Gets them to a World Cup final in 86. And then gets them to win the World Cup in 90. Goes to Marseille, initially as sporting director, has to take over as manager, wins the league, 
and then goes to Bayern and wins the league in his one season there, leaves, and then they ask him to come back and he wins the UEFA Cup. But he couldn't he couldn't adjust to management because the players weren't as good as him. And like he was managing great players. Great, great players. They still weren't as good as him, and it frustrated him. And number two on my list is Matthias Zammer. Dinamo Dresden, Stuttgart, a failed spell into Milan, but then an incredible run with Borussia Dortmund. Cut short in his at his absolute peak by a horrendous knee injury. Won two West German, or sorry, East German titles with uh, Dresden. Won the Bundesliga with Stuttgart. Then won two Bundesligas and a Champions League with Dortmund. Was part of the German team, my favorite international team of all time, that won the Euros in eight in in ninety six. Won the Ballon d'Or in ninety six as well, and genuinely was just was perfect for that role. He'd been a defensive midfielder who moved back into that role and modernized it from what it was in Beckenbauer's era to what he made it, where with Beckenbauer, he could carry the ball out, obviously, and would go on these long dribbles and just beat people for fun with that long stride of his. But Beckenbauer could also ping that 50, 60-yard pass. Zammer was slightly different in that he would almost play one-twos the whole way up. Or he would give it early and then make an off-ball third-man run to get into the box to get on the end of a cross. He was just so, so good. So clever. Read the game brilliantly. Very good defensively. Mateus Zammer is number two. Gaetano Syria, legendary Juventus defender. Played for the club from 74 to 88. Having initially come through the academy at Atalanta and played there. Won 78 caps for the Italian national team. Won the World Cup in 82. With Juve, he won seven league titles, two cups, a European Cup, a Cup Winners' Cup, and a UEFA Cup, as well as a Super Cup. He's one of the few players to win all three of the major major European competitions. Unfortunately, passed away far too early. He was involved in a car crash in the summer of 1989. He was only 36 years of age. He'd only retired the year before. He was he was the man that kept Baresi out of the national team. That's how good he was. There was young Baresi. And this guy was in his prime, but still, Baresi was Baresi. But this guy was, from a defensive point of view, he's probably the best on the list. <laughs> because he could man-mark absolutely anybody. But he could also play. Like, he could sling passes all over the pitch. He would read the game really well and just intercept the ball and charge forward with it. But defensively, he was outstanding. That ability to see things before they happened, step in, make a challenge, time everything to perfection, never got red carded in his entire career. Actually, as an aside, as an aside, speaking of red cards, I I don't know what... Oh, I was watching the stick to football thing yesterday um, with Roy Keane 
uh, talking about the red cards he's got in his career. And Sergio Ramos has 28 red cards. And I always thought that's hilarious. Well over double what Roy Keane got. And I always, and I, I thought to myself, I wonder who has the most red cards in history. Uh, Gerardo Bedoya is a Colombian former footballer and current manager. Uh, he began as a defender, but also played as a defensive midfielder. He currently holds the records for the most red, red cards in the history of the game, with 46, 46 red cards. Here's a breakdown. Uh, Deportivo Pereira, he played there from 95 to 97. He got two red cards. Deportivo Cali, played there from 1998 to 2001 and again in 2003. 14 red cards. He was only there four years. Racing Club in Argentina, 01 to 03, five red cards. Uh, Cologne in Argentina, 2004, two red cards. Uh, Atletico Nacional back in Colombia, 05 to 06, two red cards. Milaneros, 06 to 2010, seven red cards. Seven red cards in four years. Um, Envigado, 2010, two red cards. Santa Fe, 2011 to 2013, two years, 10 red cards. Uh, Cucata Deportivo, 2015, two red cards. Now, 46 red cards in his club career. He played for Colombia 49 times and only got sent off once. Once. He's been a manager on and off, generally with Santa Fe, either as an assistant or caretaker or the full-time manager uh, since 2016. Uh, he's been sent off once doing that as well. So he's actually been sent off 48 times in his career. Once in international football, once as a manager, and 46 times in his club career. Magnificent. 14 red cards for Deportivo Cali. 14 of them. He only played in like 140 or 150 matches for them. Oh, Santa Fe, he played 100 games. He got sent off 10 times. That is tremendous stuff. Tremendous stuff. And then you've got Gaetano Serie never sent off. Uh, number four on my list, maybe a little bit of a personal pick, but I've gone with Jika Papescu, um, the outstanding Romanian who made his name with Creva uh, in Roma Romania, whose name I've definitely butchered, uh, played for Stoya Bucharest for, for a year, was exceptional with PSV and was a vital part of their team um, in winning two uh, Eredivisie titles. Went to Spurs, got used really badly, got fed up, forced his way to Barcelona, spent two years there, was absolutely brilliant for them. Unfortunately, didn't win a league title because this Real Madrid just happened to be a little bit better, but did win the Copa del Rey and the UEFA Cup Winners Cup. Went to Galatasaray, won Three league titles, two Turkish Cups, a UEFA Cup and a Super Cup. He was voted Romanian Player of the Year six times, made 115 appearances for his national team, uh, scoring 16 goals. Um, genuinely, genuinely a great, great player. Very similar to Zammer. A little bit bigger, 
but that defensive midfielder who moved to sweeper and then later in his career played centre back. Um, he, he was he was just a great defender. Uh, up fifth, we've got Laurent Blanc. Now a lot of people remember him more as a centre back, but if you look back at his Montpellier days, he did play uh, more as a sweeper. Uh, he initially started off playing as a ten, and then moved backwards. He was such a good passer of the ball. And his reading of the game, he was purely a defensive sweeper more than a kind of an attack-minded one like some of the others on this list. But with Montpellier, he was incredible. Had the year at Napoli, went to Nîmes, Saint-Étienne, Auxerre, Barcelona. Was actually very good there at Barcelona in the year he spent there. Marseille, Inter Milan. And then he finished up playing for Manchester United. And he was well washed by the time he got to United. And yet he was still their best defender. Um, Won the Coupe de France with Montpellier. Won the French title with Auxerre. uh, And another Coupe de France. Won the same trophies as Pepescu. He was playing next to Pepescu uh, for Bobby Robson's Barcelona team. Um, The two of them just sitting there pinging the ball about was a glorious sight. Won a league title with United. French under, uh, sorry, European under 21 championship with France, World Cup and European championships with France, French Football of the Year in 1990, European Championship team of the tournament 92, 96, and 2000. (laughs) Obviously, a decent manager as well. Won the league title with Bordeaux, won three league titles at PSG, uh, three time French manager of the year. Um, Maybe a questionable personality. Uh, fell out with a few players, definitely said some things that he I would hope he regrets. Um failed in his last job at Lille. Uh, sorry, Leon, but I, I think he, he showed at Bordeaux, France, and, and PSG. He's actually quite a good manager. Uh number six on my list then is Ronald Koeman, Ron the Red. Um a dreadful manager, but a great player. A great, great player. Uh for Groningen, then Ajax, then PSV, Barcelona. And then Feyenoord, Eredivisie title and Dutch Cup with Ajax. Three Eredivisie titles, two Dutch Cups and a European Cup with PSV. Went to Barcelona, was part of Cruyff's dream team, won four league titles, a Copa del Rey, a European Cup and got to another European Cup final. With the Netherlands, he won the Euros in 88 and was a vital part of that team. He was Dutch Footballer of the Year twice. Again, another who played in midfield, played in defence, but best as a sweeper. Uh, Again, he might have the best passing range of any player in the history of the game because of the power he could generate. You wouldn't want him running back towards his own goal because he didn't run very fast, but a, a genuinely great sweeper with the game in front of him, able to pick passes out. Obviously, a phenomenal set piece taker as well. Uh, the top-scoring defender in the history of world football with 90 goals in all competitions. Um, Barcelona's top-scoring defender. Actually, sorry, 90 goals was for Barcelona. Uh, 238 goals in his career. Um, Just consider these numbers for a second. With PSV, 39 games, 19 goals, 26 games, sorry, 46 games, 26 goals, 45 games, 18 goals. That's ridiculous. Then he goes to Barca, 19 and 48, 12 and 32, 17 and 
49, 11 and 43, 19 and 50, and 10 in 42. And then we went to Feyenoord, he scored 14 and 42 and 9 and 37. That is outrageous. Every season between starting with 86, 87 and ending with 95, 96, he was double figures. And every season, bar his very first year, where he scored 6 and 27, he scored at least eight goals between 81, 82 and 96, 97. Like, think about that for a second. A defender, defensive midfielder, then defender, getting those type of goal numbers. 6, 14, 14, 9, 13, 8, 19, 26, 18, 19, 12, 17, 11, 19, 10, 14, 9. Outrageous. Scored 14 goals for the national team as well in 78 appearances. Uh, he was a great player. Ronald Koeman was a great player. Uh, another one then who was more defensive than on ball, but Klaus Augenthaler, part of the German team that won the World Cup in 1990, was also part of the squad that was runner-up in 86. Um, one of the true greats of Bayern Munich, spent his entire career there. Won seven Bundesligas, uh, three European Cups, two-time Euro. Sorry, three, three Dutch, uh, German. Why can't I speak? Seven Bundesligas, three German Cups, two-time European Cup runner-up. Um, Bundesliga team of the t- tournament twice. He was picked in Bayern's all-time eleven. He was just a guy that read the game brilliantly, and was absolutely rock solid defensively like hard as nails feared nothing but he's the type of guy you wanted in your team great great player um sticking with the germans it's a very heavily german list uh uli stalicki who's the guy that agenthaler replaced in the german team for all intents and purposes uh, came through at Borussia Mönchengladbach, did very well there, went on to Real Madrid and was great for Real. Uh, with Gladbach, he won three league titles and the UEFA Cup. With Real, he won three league titles and the UEFA Cup. With both clubs, he was a runner-up in the European Cup. He went on to play in uh, Switzerland for Zamax and he won two titles there. So eight league titles in the career. Uh, one, two, three domestic, four domestic cups, two UEFA cups, won the European Championships of the Germans in 1980, World Cup runner-up in 1982. Best foreign player in the in the in La Liga four times. He was a very much a ball player. He was. He was probably the one that Zammer modeled himself on most because he'd been a midfielder and like a quite a creative all round midfielder who'd moved backwards. Wasn't the biggest, 5'9, 5'10, but didn't need to be always in the right position. Would literally go box to box repeatedly throughout games, never ever slowed up. If you can find yourself some footage of that, that glad back team. Or his time at, um, or his time with with uh, Real. Absolutely, make sure that you do. 
Great, great player. Uh, another Romanian comes in next. Miodrag Beladici, who is one of, I think he might have been the first player to win the European Cup with two different teams. He was. He was the first player to, to win the European Cup with two different teams who actually played in both finals. Some others had done it maybe before uh, without managing to play in the finals. So he comes through Stoya Bucharest. He's part of that great Stoya team that win the Euro- wins the European Cup in 86. Goes to Red Star Belgrade, and he's part of that amazing Belgrade team that would win the European Cup. Then he played for Valencia, Valladolid, Villarreal, uh, Atlante in Mexico, and then back to Stoya to finish out his career. 55 caps for Romania, five goals. But again, just one of the, the great defensive sweepers. Uh, six league titles with Stoya, five Romanian Cups, a European Cup and a Euro, uh, UEFA Super Cup. He won three Yugoslav First League titles with Red Star, a Yugoslav Cup and the European Cup, uh, as well as the Intercontinental Cup. He finished eighth in the Ballon d'Or in 1991. Just literally like galvanise. Tough as anything, always where you needed them. Made that team, that Red Star team, which was a little bit lacking in discipline because they had so much talent and they were so free-flowing. But he made them strong defensively. And he was obviously, like I said, part of that great Stoya team as well. Um, Born in Serbia. No, sorry. Born to a family of Serbs near the border with Serbia. He actually grew up only speaking Serbian. Didn't speak Romanian until he was like 10. Didn't start playing organized football until he was 16. And still went on to have the career that he had. Unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. Became very close friends with um, Georgie Hadji as well. He's known to be in Hadji's inner circle. And if you were in the inner circle, you were safe. And if you weren't, you were kind of fucked. <laughs> Number 10 on my list then, I'm going with Victor Anopka. Um, Just a player I always liked. Played for, Sha- for uh, Shakhtar. Dinamo Kiev, Shakhtar, then Spartak Moscow, which is where I first saw him. Went on to Real Oviedo and was brilliant for them for seven years. Um, played for Rayo Vaikano, went back and played for Vladikavkaz, and then Saturn in Russia. Just again, one of those sort of defensive midfielders who moved back and then eventually became a centre back, a bit like Chica Popescu, very similar style to Popescu, but just a really, really good player. 109 caps for the Russian national team, as well as four for the Commonwealth Commonwealth of Independent States. So 113 caps total. But it's that time between Spartak and Real Oviedo where he was just so good. Among the very best in the world um, in his position or in defensive positions for those years. Great, great player. Um, So that's it. Beckenbauer, Zammer, Skiria, Popescu, 
Blanc, Kuman, Agenthaler, Stalecki, Belodidici, and Onopka. That is our top 10 sweepers. Uh, on to the news. Uh, Aaron Ramsdale has lost his smile, according to his dad. Uh, he should probably call Shawn Michaels. He lost his smile once back in the 90s, and I think he managed to get it back. Uh, Jude Bellingham and Levi Colwell have pulled out of the England squad with injuries. There's something here about bags of urine, cans of bud, and the team that saved US soccer. I'm not going to read that. Uh, Andros Townsend has said he's eating chicken feet in a bid to extend his career. So, okay. Neymar is apparently responding very well after his ACL surgery. And finally, we will do the we will do the gossip. Um, Richarlison and Jaden Sancho are January targets for the Saudi Pro League. That is from the Telegraph. Matt Law, probably nonsense. Juventus are interested in signing Sancho, but only on loan with United paying part of the salary. That's my friend, the spoofer with the catchphrase. Football Insider, another spoofer, has said that United are not ready to give up on Sancho by allowing him to leave in January. Well, the manager has already given up on him, so I, I think you're probably wrong there. Uh, Reese James remains fully committed to Chelsea despite interest from Manchester City and Real Madrid. We don't know that there is interest from Real Madrid or Manchester City. Um, that news came from sources such as 90minute.com. And would you believe it, this story about him being fully committed, also from 90minute.com. Manchester United bosses are refusing to meet agents if they are trying to pitch clients to replace Eric Ten Hag as manager. Okay. Uh, Tottenham are looking at Sam Samuel Illing Jr. as a possible January signing. I, I, he's very talented, uh, the Juventus winger. Corinthians 18-year-old midfielder Gabriel Moscardo has attracted interest from... Who, who has attracted interest from Arsenal and Barcelona? Says Chelsea were keen to sign him in the summer. Hopefully he's too smart to make that move. They've already got a ton of centre midfielders, kid. Don't go there. Don't go there. Real Madrid have added Florian Verts, Jeremy Frimpong and Victor Boniface to their transfer shortlist. That's according to football transfers. Uh, it's either Jack Talbot or Steve Kay, both of whom are spoofers. And we'll click in. It's Cameron Smith. Don't know who he is, but Cameron, I'm afraid, son, you've officially been put on spoof watch because when a man with the name Cameron Smith uh, tells me the details of what Real Madrid are planning with Revealed, uh, I, I just have to assume that you're spoofing. I have to assume that you are. Uh, Barcelona are open to selling Rafinha and hope top European clubs will bid for the Brazilian 40. He's very, very good. He'll definitely find uh, a new club quite easily. Real Madrid are ready to extend Edder Militao's contract until at least 2028. That's a good move. Brighton have brought Evan Ferguson in line with the club's top earners with his new six-year contract. That's very clever for them. Uh, Bayern Munich president Herbert Heiner says they have no interest in selling Alfonso Davies amid transfer interest from Real Madrid. The problem is he's had a contract in 2025 and you can't lose him for free. Joe Polinia says he does not know what will happen 
after being asked about rekindling a move to Bayern Munich. Um, yeah, I, I, I assume he will end up there, but I could be completely wrong. Former Marseille manager Igor Tudor is the favourite to replace Rudy Garcia as Napoli boss, according to the spoofer. Um, I mean, Garcia is still in the job. So, I, I suppose it's just a matter of wait and see. I mean, I, I just don't... Igor Tudor is not someone I rate very highly as a manager. Um, he's just been binned off by, by Marseille. Uh, he did not do particularly well at Verona, in my view. I thought him getting the Napoli job was a little bit of a surprise. He didn't do particularly well at Hadjik Split. He got sacked there. He didn't do particularly well at uh, Udinese. Did pretty poorly at Galatasaray. Karabukspor, you did poorly. PAOK, you did really poorly. Uh, you might have done okay back with Hadjik Split in your first stint, but it's not even great. Like, it's not great at all. You won a Croatian Cup, that's it. Uh, no, I I just don't think he's a good manager, personally. Um, Cannavaro is also, that was mentioned yesterday. Former Newcastle striker Papi Cissé has been training with Macclesfield FC and the non-league side could sign the 38-year-old who is a free agent. That'd be great. That'd be great. I love seeing players at the end of their career go and play a bit of non-league. Right, folks, that'll do. I'll see you all tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.